Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, will you consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is the energy analyst, Alistair Newton. Alistair, an Arab Digest newsletter regular contributor, worked as a political analyst in the City of London from 2005 to 2015. Before that, he spent 20 years as a career diplomat with the British Diplomatic Service. In 2015, he co-founded and is a director of Alavan Business Advisory Limited. Alistair, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure, Bill. Good to be back with you. After the awful tragedy in Libya, the destruction of much of the city of Derna on 11th of September, oil prices climbed. Such is the nature of the business. Oil prices are now hovering around $92 a barrel. At one point, though, they were close to $100. You've taken the position that by year-end, prices will fall between $80 to $90 a barrel. Where, where are you standing now on that, uh, on that call, Alistair? Well, as you know, Bill, I'm I'm rather averse to changing my call on oil during the course of a year, even though I have done it this year. You'll recall, and I'm sure uh, many newsletter readers will recall, that I predicted $100 a barrel back in January for the price of Brent crude at the end of 2023, uh, with the caveat that this was simply on the grounds that that's where we thought uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman wanted the floor in the price to be. And I chose that to go with the prince simply because of all the uncertainty in the global economy, which we knew uh, was um, going to be around for the course of this year and which indeed has proved to be the case. Uh, Nevertheless, in mid-year, because of uh, lowered expectations of China's economic performance in the second half of the year in particular, uh, I reverted back to 80 to 90 bucks a barrel, which is my, as it turned out, correct forecast for 2022. Um, And I'm not about to change again, simply because we've seen Brent climb, as you rightly remarked a few moments ago, into the $90 to $100 a barrel range. And clearly, um, there are forces at work. Um, OPEC Secretary General yesterday, for example, uh, trying to push the price above 100 bucks a barrel. And not just on the oil production side, we're also seeing a lot of activity among hedge funds uh, who are also betting on $100 a barrel plus. And yet, as you remarked in posing this question, we actually saw oil sliding back from around 96 to 92 last week, which suggests that there are downward forces at work as well. In fact, the OPEC Secretary General managed to talk it back up to 96, 95, I think, dollars a barrel uh, on the 2nd of October. So we are seeing conflicting forces at work, and bearing in mind that overall sentiments about China's economic prospects remain fairly gloomy, bearing in mind that the, in Europe, too, sentiment over economic prospects is not exactly buoyant. I think for the time being, I'm going to stick to 80 to $90 a barrel, um, simply because of all that uncertainty. And also because, 
you know, as I've quipped on many occasions when people ask me, what is your forecast for Brent crude at the end of this year? My answer has on many occasions been, I know exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be wrong. So on that note, Bill, I think I'll stick with where I am for the time being at least. Okay. Let me... Let me ask you one uh, follow-up, Alistair. You mentioned Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, how much power does he actually have to influence the price of oil? I, I suppose ultimately the answer to that is infinite, but only at a significant cost to Saudi Arabia. Um, let's consider that Saudi, the Saudis at the moment are pumping at about 25% below capacity. Um, they're down at 9 million barrels a day. Their capacity is estimated to be about 12 million barrels a day. Uh, when he started, no, actually, that's wrong. Not when he started making these cuts, because he started a year ago, as you'll recall. But when we saw the voluntary cuts coming, voluntary in inverted commas, cuts coming in this year, when we saw Russia following suit, Brent was somewhere around $75, 75 to $80 a barrel and been pretty much range bound there for some time so even at 92 in terms of revenue realized per day Saudi Arabia actually has a shortfall relative to it was before before we saw these cuts coming in so how far is MBS prepared to go uh, we have seen the OPEC Secretary General saying this week um, you need to take a long-term view, stop taking short-term views on inflation, stop taking short-term views on oil. We need massive investment in oil. We need to be, oil will be a major constituent in global energy supply until 2045. Obviously talking their book. And what this says to me is that the oil producing countries and OPEC plus are actually very concerned about um, the prospect of reaching peak oil before uh, 2030 or no later than 2030, i.e. consistent with the most recent forecast from the International Energy Agency. Um, and after that, we see oil start, oil demand starting to decline, at least as far as energy is concerned. It could go up for other reasons, fertilizer, plastics and so on. And there clearly is scope for some expansion there, despite the big environmentalist pushback against plastics these days. Um, so, I think the oil producers are concerned. I think they are perhaps acting counterproductively at the moment because clearly the higher the price of Brent grows, the more incentive there is for the rest of the world to be accelerating the decarbonisation of the global economy. It's an interesting struggle. It clearly has a long way to go. Personally, I think that the UAE has probably been uh, on the right side of the argument in pushing to boost its quota in OPEC, in other words, to get as much oil out of the ground as it possibly can, rather than being left with a stranded resource or a large stranded resource at some point in the future. Um, so MBS can influence the price clearly, but the big question to my mind is, can he actually influence it to Saudi Arabia's longer term advantage? Mm, as you say, this is a very delicate balancing act that uh, is playing out. I, I want to ask you about COP28, which is coming up in Dubai, as you know, at the end of November. And it's presided over by Sultan Al-Jabr, the head of ADNOC, one of the largest energy companies in the world. There's a lot of criticism of that among environmentalists. Uh, is it a case of Fox and the hen, hen House, Alistair, or is it a shrewd choice? I, I, 
I suspect that the UAE will be a reasonably honest broker. It has a, a big incentive in terms of its general self-perception and profile promotion in the conference being a success, whatever that means. Um, and it is quite difficult to define what success actually means in the context of these uh, of the, these COP meetings, because clearly, as we know from experience over many years, uh, we come out of COP meetings, some governments declare it a success, some governments declare it a failure. The NGO community at large writes it off completely and says we're not doing enough, and they're undoubtedly right. Uh, and if we go all the way back to the Paris COP, the sort of cornerstone of where we're supposed to be today, uh, one would have to say that since then, progress has overall been very disappointing relative to the modestly ambitious targets which were set at that time, which are largely clearly going to be missed barring some sort of Damascene moment. I also think it's very important to remember that in the end, to my mind at least, and I think many would agree with me on this, uh, perhaps the biggest failing in the COP process has been the reluctance of the developed world to give serious consideration to its responsibilities in terms of stocks rather than flows, i.e. the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, of course, but mainly carbon dioxide, which the developed world pumped into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution began in Britain at the end of the 18th century. And I do firmly believe that there is still far too much concentration on flows rather than stocks and that the developed world needs to face up to its responsibilities for the damage which has already been done in terms of the stock of carbon dioxide which has been put into the atmosphere. I don't think that is going to get addressed seriously at the next COP either, unfortunately. But good luck to the UAE. I hope they manage to come out with something which... Um, at least go some way to advancing this important agenda and from which, not incidentally, because clearly this is important to the United Arab Emirates, uh, they are able to burnish their credentials as a medium-sized power and significant diplomatic player in the process. You know, Alistair, hanging over COP28 is this specter of climate change that's increasingly violent and devastating the Middle East and North Africa are on the front line of the battle, as we've seen, not just from that awful Libyan catastrophe, but really throughout the region. Record-breaking temperatures, wildfires, dust storms, floods, drought. Are these big state-owned energy companies in the Gulf, Adnoc, Saudi Aramco, Qatar Energy, Kuwait Petroleum, going to seize the nettle and do something really big and meaningful? Or to uh, mix up my metaphors, are they just going to try and thread the needle. I think they're going to continue to try to thread the needle, perhaps particularly Saudi Aramco, um, whose idea of uh, net zero as an oil company is, is, is has been well documented by many expert commentators, um, very far from the mark insofar as they Maybe they do manage to get net zero on output, but they discount completely the burning of the fuel. We're not responsible for that. We're only responsible for the production. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, one could have a big argument about that. And clearly, there is scope for all of these big state-owned oil producers 
moving more into alternative energy. And I'm sure that they will do so over time. We've seen Saudi Arabia doing a lot of talk about hydrogen, for example. And although, um, as I believe I documented in the newsletter some time back, I'm sceptical about the extent to which hydrogen will be the fuel of the future rather than part of a a much wider ranging mix. Um, Clearly, there is incredible scope in the Gulf region with its massive amounts of solar potential for the production of genuinely green hydrogen from seawater. And I I would certainly anticipate that we are going to see these Middle East oil companies going down that track in the future and becoming energy companies rather than principally hydrocarbon based companies. But they're not moving as quickly as they could be on this. And going back to my answer to your first question, uh, there clearly is a great reluctance on behalf of Saudi Arabia, perhaps in particular, uh, to concede that we are at the beginning of the end of the hydrocarbons era. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the energy analyst, Alistair Newton. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. We're a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Looking at the um, big picture, and particularly Putin's war in Ukraine, how useful to the Gulf states is oil as a geopolitical weapon, Alistair? I mean, is there any chance of a blowback? I I think there's a big chance of a blowback. Uh, Let's just take the example of Russia and gas. Um, The speed with which the European Union moved following the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 took everybody by surprise, perhaps even the leaders of the European Union itself. Uh, And what we've seen effectively is Russia's principal gas market disappear in the space of 12 months. And that clearly is a major blow to the Russian economy, uh, which is struggling a lot more than you might believe from some of the headlines. And it does rather underline that one of the problems with using oil or gas as a geopolitical weapon is that there is plenty of scope for a backlash. In other words, there will be a replacement come into play sooner or later. Now, clearly, a great deal of damage could be done in the meantime. Uh, I've been reflecting recently with a number of my clients about the possibility of slightly different subject, but nevertheless related, China bringing in embargoes on strategic minerals which are needed for the green transition. Uh, Well, we've already seen clear evidence of the West gearing up in anticipation of that. And although that will take time and there would be short term, uh, short to medium term, to be fair, damage from an embargo of exports of strategic minerals by China. Similarly, uh, in the export of oil or gas from an oil or gas producing country, um, the, the world will find a way to get around this over time. And the weapon, once defused, becomes of very limited use indeed. And indeed, using oil and gas as a geopolitical weapon, rather similar to the argument I put forward a a few moments ago about pushing up the price of Brent to $100 a barrel plus, ultimately is likely to prove counterproductive. Peak oil. Now, at some point, the world will 
wean itself off fossil fuels. Net zero, we're told, is coming. The Emiratis have said 2050. The Saudis have given themselves, I think it's a decade longer. Peak oil, 2030, maybe 2025, some people are saying. What do you say, Alistair? And, and, you know, this whole idea of peak oil, how kind of relevant is it to the conversation? I think it's very relevant, Bill, because I think it will be an important landmark. And uh, as Henry Kissinger actually never did say, perceptions uh, are reality. And the perception that demand for oil is in permanent decline will, I think, be a major spur to continued progress with decarbonisation. Uh, uh, The whole idea that the world is moving away from oil and gas is likely to be a big boost, for example, in the uh, to the production of electric vehicles. Um, It's likely to lead to a big drive in setting up recharging stations and so on and so forth. It will be a a kind of watershed moment. Is it going to be 2025 or 2030 or maybe later? I honestly don't know. Uh, But let's for the moment stick with the IEA's latest forecast, which I mentioned a few moments ago, which is no later than 2030. That's pretty consistent with the consensus view among the experts. Uh, I do think that Saudi Arabia is probably being very optimistic, thinking that it's going to be continuing to produce oil as a fuel come uh, the 2050s. But time will tell. Um, Well, I won't be around to see it for sure. But well, yeah, as you say, time will tell. But I suppose, too, just to come back to that question of oil as a geopolitical weapon, using oil as a geopolitical weapon aggressively now could indeed cost Saudi Arabia down the road in terms of its relations with some pretty powerful nations. Uh, yes, including, let's be clear, China. Um, Saudi-China relations are seemingly very good. Uh, the Chinese who have plenty of their own economic problems already, including, it should be said, deflation rather than inflation. So they're probably not hugely concerned about the broader implications of higher oil prices. Nevertheless, the Chinese are hardly going to be pleased if they find themselves paying, I don't know, 110, 120 bucks a barrel. Um, And they are likely to, uh, I suspect, more quietly than the Americans make a habit of doing, uh, to try to bring some pressure to bear for, for, for output to be increased again to bring the price down a bit. be interesting to see how that pans out, given the, the, the lovey-dovey relations we've seen between MBS and Xi Jinping over the course of this year. You know, um, you and I aren't going to be around uh, 20 or 30 years from now, I dare say, but let me ask you anyway, what do you think the business of energy in the Gulf will look like three decades from now? Will these big national oil companies have successfully made the transition? Or am I just asking you to crystal ball gaze too much on that one? I think they have to, Bill, uh, perhaps particularly Saudi Aramco. Uh, if we look at ADNOC by comparison, the UAE has been much more successful uh, than Saudi Arabia either has been or looks like being in the foreseeable future, by which I mean, let's say, the next decade or so, in diversifying its economy. Now, clearly, Dubai uh, in the UAE has been very much in the lead on this, and for obvious reasons, it doesn't have any oil, and has been very, very successful despite the 
economic fragility, which it went through after the global financial crisis in 2008, from which it seems to have very much recovered. Uh, Abu Dhabi was a little bit behind the curve there. I think it really started its diversification probably around 2005, but again has made remarkable progress. And I would fully expect that the uh, Emiratis, who have been quite far-seeing in, in their view of how they need to diversify their economy, to continue to do well, at least in relative terms. They, they, Dubai now genuine global hub for business, um, tourism transit, and so on and so forth. And uh, Abu Dhabi, not quite up there, but still doing well on that count. Saudi Arabia, a long way behind. So if Saudi Aramco wishes to continue to do well, which means, uh, to put it another way, if the Saudi economy wishes to continue to do well, because Aramco is such a key part of that economy, if Saudi Arabia continues to, wants to continue to do well economically, Saudi Aramco is going to have to diversify and diversify quickly. Now, they have the expertise. These guys, if they are expert in anything, are expert in energy business. And I can't, I fail to understand why they are not diversifying more quickly than they are, unless they are simply in the business at the moment of trying to convince themselves that oil is going to continue to be the major component in the global energy mix for a lot longer than most experts uh, think to be the case. Now, having said that, of course, the national oil companies are not alone in this. You could say the same about one or two American uh, oil majors. Um, and indeed others. So it's not just the national oil companies, it's also the IOCs who need to be con considering carefully broadening their energy footprint well beyond um, hydrocarbons. Now, BP, of course, has been talking about this for a very long time. I, I think overall, I would join the community of environmentalists who um, have repeatedly said that BP, BP actually talks a better game than it delivers. And I think that's true of all the oil uh, major uh, producers, whether they be national oil companies or um, international oil companies. Yeah, and, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because particularly with Saudi Aramco, looking at the environmental situation, uh, the clock is ticking. I sometimes think that Mohammed bin Salman is holding the, the future of the world in his hands. If Saudi Aramco doesn't get it right, you know, we don't get this situation solved. If these big national oil companies of the Gulf don't take a, a lead, then, you know, we're looking at a terrible, terrible scenario, that kind of doomsday scenario of, of, of massive environmental disaster. Yes, and it's, it's hard to be optimistic if one takes um, as being even 50% correct that very interesting newsletter uh, which Arab Digest posted at the end of September about... Uh, MBS's lifestyle. I'm not going to say any more about that, Bill. I'll let the newsletter speak for itself and commend it highly to Arab Digest readers. Well, the point, I suppose, of the newsletter too is there's a degree of uh, volatility and uncertainty in the leadership that surrounds the character and personality of Mohammed bin Salman. And as you said, he's very much the driving force in Saudi Aramco. Uh, if he wants to cut production, production is cut. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Well, quite. Um, and I think that that particular newsletter, alongside the other very interesting newsletter uh, posted at about the same time on unrest in the Saudi military, I think they make sobering reading. 
uh, and rather add to my sense that there is a goodly degree of uncertainty about where exactly Saudi Arabia is heading at this time uh, and where it will be in five, ten years' time. Now, I know that uh, a lot of people have lost a lot of money betting on Saudi regime change over many years, and I'm not about to start betting on Saudi regime change. What I'm saying is there's probably a lot more uncertainty about where Saudi Arabia will be in the in the medium term future uh, than is generally realized. We'll leave it there, Alistair, and uh, thank you very much. Okay, Bill, uh, thanks very much indeed. And uh, great pleasure chatting with you about these, frankly, extremely important issues for the whole world, not just uh, for the part of the world in which Arab Digest uh, is such an expert, i.e. the Arab world. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the energy analyst Alistair Newton, co-founder and director of Alavan Business Consultancy, and a regular contributor to our daily newsletter. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcasts with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Alistair. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 180 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.